Last month, on a random Thursday, people here in New York got the kind of news it's hard to turn away from. This is breaking news from Channel 7 Eyewitness News. And we are following breaking news. A major break in a cold case that left residents shaken for more than 12 years. A suspect now under arrest in connection to the unsolved murders on Long Island known as the Gilgo Beach murders. We have live team coverage of this breaking story. There'd been an arrest in a 12-year-old cold case. A series of shocking murders in suburban Long Island. Thank you. Now to the stunning arrest in the Gilgo Beach murders. Police finally took a suspect into custody. His name, Rex Heuerman. Rex Heuerman is a 59-year-old architect. A guy who seemed to live an ordinary commuter's life. He's now accused of spending years relentlessly stalking and murdering women who are making their living as escorts. He left their bodies by the side of a highway, almost as if the victims were nothing at all. While nothing can fill the void caused by the loss of a loved one, through today's announcement, we are hopeful that the families of the victims begin to experience a sense of peace, closure, and justice, and that the general public feels safer knowing that an alleged killer is no longer roaming free. As article after article about this alleged serial killer filled my newsfeed, I could not stop thinking about Rex Hureman's victims and why it had taken so long for their families to see a glimmer of justice. So I called up an expert on this case, Robert Kolker. Ten years back, when the first few women were found, Robert dedicated himself to telling their stories. Back then, he was a crime reporter for New York Magazine. I resisted working on this story at first. Hold it, why? I think I made two really faulty assumptions. The first is I thought that by the time I got in my car and got out there, the case would be solved already. Why do you think that? Well, about 18 months earlier, there had been a Craigslist killer case out in New England. Someone had hired a woman on Craigslist, killed her, and then within 48 hours, the police had followed his digital trail and apprehended him. And I thought, well, four victims for digital trails. They're going to find this guy four times as quickly. It's going to be over. That is, of course, the opposite of what happened. And when Robert heard about the arrest last month, he was just as shocked as anyone. In 12 years, there had been barely a peep from the police. There would never be a person of interest declared, never anyone brought in for questioning. So to see an arrest, that made me think, wow, they they must be something. This must be real. As this case became headline news again, there was this one image Robert couldn't shake. Um, Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you all for coming. Uh, It was captured at the official press conference after the suspect's arrest. The police commissioner was publicly embracing the families of the victims. I can only imagine what you had to adore over the last decade regarding knowing that your killer was still loose. God bless you. They were standing shoulder to shoulder with law enforcement. It was exciting to see them up there at the the district attorney and police commissioner's joint press conference that night at like six o'clock. And they were coming in from faraway places like Buffalo and northern Connecticut. Yeah, I wonder if in some ways it was breathtaking because you were seeing these women at the podium, you know, 
in a position of some authority. Yeah, that that was not lost on me. This was a case where the police treated the families at arm's length for a very long time. There was a bit of distaste, even a contempt for them, certainly contempt for the victims. They, they were largely, in the beginning, they were uh, resentful that this case had landed in their jurisdiction. They felt as if the victims uh, more or less, you know, Uh, didn't deserve to have their murders investigated the same way that other people did. If something similar happened today, if bodies were found on a Long Island beach along the highway, do you think it would take a decade, more than a decade, to find the alleged murderer? When you ask, would it be different today? My first thought is, well, you know, Every, the whole world would be crying out to, for them to solve the case, so of course it would be different. But in fact, it was like it back then, too. Today on the show, the long wait for justice on Long Island. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. Hey, friend. Before you hit fast forward through this ad, let me just bend your ear a tick and tell you all about Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. You know that what next is going to be here for you, whether there's big breaking news or whether you just want to hear about a story you might have missed. Basically, we've got you totally covered. And we're here thanks to Slate. If you want to support us, and I know you do, the best way to do that is to join Slate Plus. It'll get you all connected with Slate's award-winning journalism. You'll get ad-free podcasts. You'll get plus-exclusive content on shows like Slow Burn and Political Gab Fest. And you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. Every new membership helps ensure we can continue bringing you the biggest stories each week. So go on, hit the pause button, and go to slate.com slash whatnextplus. Again, that's slate.com slash whatnextplus. All right, on with the show. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Robert Kolker eventually wrote a book about the women whose bodies turned up on Gilgo Beach. He called it Lost Girls. He says, as you read the headlines about their deaths and the man who's accused of killing them, it's worth remembering who they were in life. The first one who disappeared was in the middle of 2007, this was Maureen Brainerd Barnes. She was 24 years old and had a, a daughter and a son. She was struggling to find a way to live independently from her boyfriend and to support her kids. And she found that going to New York for a weekend a month and making money as an escort ended up solving that problem for her in a way that you know, working 100 hours a week at the shop right didn't. The next woman disappeared two years later, Melissa Bartholomew from Buffalo, New York. She was in a world where options were closing up as well, but Melissa decided to go to New York. She wanted to own her own hair salon. 
Shannon Gilbert, went missing in 2010. Her body wasn't found until more than a year later. Even today, police will not confirm her cause of death. She was in foster care because of an unstable family situation. At the same time that she was working as an escort in the New York area, she also was reforming and cementing relationships with her mother and with her sisters until she went missing. Megan Waterman vanished a few weeks after Shannon. And then in September, it was Amber Costello. Megan was always a rebel. And eventually she fell in love with a guy who came from New York City. And he became her business manager to make money on Craigslist. Megan had dreams that it would end one day and that they would sort of lead a more normal, conventional life. But that never happened. And then Amber may have had the most tragic life. She grew up in Wilmington, North Carolina, and her older sister Kim and she were inseparable because they were the only family they had for one another. The parents had both sort of been lost to addiction. And eventually they were sex workers as well. They moved to Long Island. They worked there for just a short time before Amber disappeared. Before the bodies were found, the women were missing and the families knew, right? That's right. They, they knew, they cared, they wanted help, and they couldn't get help. They asked the police, and the police couldn't be bothered. Can you give me an example of just how hard the families of these women worked to find them and what happened when they went to the police? To me, it's the most telling thing about this case, that before it was a serial killer case, it was a case that the families couldn't get any help on at all. Maureen Brainerd Barnes disappeared in the summer of 2007, Nobody knew what happened to her for three and a half years until she was one of the four who were found on Gilgo Beach. In that three and a half years, her sister and her sister's husband made countless trips to New York City to try to find out what happened to her. They tried to get her on the National Registry of Missing Persons, but even that failed. For three and a half years, imagine someone you love most in the world is missing, and she won't even get on the Registry of Missing Persons because it is thought that perhaps she's just out there somewhere and doesn't want to be reached. How often does that happen? Does it happen, and like, did they give a reason? Were they like, well, she's an adult, she's a sex worker, or maybe she's just doing her own thing? One of the things that keeps coming up again and again in Lost Girls is how real life just isn't like CSI, that whatever registry there is of missing persons, it's woefully incomplete, that most jurisdictions don't even send their names to it, uh, that it's underfunded. And, and so we'd think that there'd be at least a list of all the people that are missing, but it just isn't the case. But then there is also a bias against escorts. They're thought to be itinerant people. Of course, they're over 21. They can live their lives. So just because a family hasn't heard from them doesn't mean that they're missing. But imagine hearing that as someone who has a close relationship with her sister, someone who's in constant touch with her, someone who last heard from her in the middle of the night from Penn Station, a phone call from Maureen saying, I'm coming home soon, and then is never heard from again. How could that person not belong on the National Registry of Missing Persons? You've alluded to this way the families felt like their daughters were being dismissed, their daughters and sisters and everything else, the victims. Was there a moment for you where you really understood that to be true? It was late in my reporting. Uh, I was about a year into it, and I was at one of many press conferences out at Oak Beach involving Shannon Gilbert's disappearance. And I was near a news truck, and one of the guys who was working on that truck turned to someone else and said, 
I can't believe they're doing all this for a whore. And, you know, that, that kind of brought it home for me, you know, that this wasn't a police corruption problem. This was all of us. This was all of us not taking it seriously when, you know, there's a killer at large and its victims are people who, you know, we've decided aren't worth saving. The way the victims' bodies were discovered speaks to the kind of indifference Bob is describing. No one was expressly looking for the women. Instead, the first body was uncovered during a training exercise with a cadaver dog. When the police searched again two days later, they found three more sets of bones. There was huge press attention. Four women all found near one another, all in the same place. And then there was a leak about burlap being involved with all four of them. Like they were wrapped in burlap. Yeah, it was unclear whether they were shrouded in burlap or whether burlap was used to bind them, which now is what the police are saying. But in any case, it screamed out serial killer. And yet the police commissioner at the time, Richard Dormer, one of the first things he said at his first press conference was, I don't want people to think that there's a Jack the Ripper running around here with a bloody knife. When in fact, that's exactly what was going on. There was a Jack the Ripper running around Long Island. It just was happening to victims that he decided weren't as, you know, worth being upset about. Huh. So what happened over the course of this 12-year investigation? Like, and what changed? Because it seems to me like you're saying, from the beginning, there was this dismissing of the families, this feeling like the victims were somehow responsible for what happened to them. So how did it get to a point where that changed? Did things have to go quite wrong before things turned the other direction? There was a culture change in Suffolk County, but it took years, and it got worse before it got better. Suffolk County, it was just described to me by a former official there, described it as a vortex almost. It's a place where uh, they distrust outsiders, where they're not friendly or cooperative with other law enforcement organizations, especially the FBI. And so when a case bigger than anything they've ever handled before comes to them, instead of looking for partners or collaborators, they kind of make vague motions in that regard. They say they're talking to the FBI, but they don't actually get the behavioral uh, science unit actually in there to work on it. They don't let them near the crime scene photos. They don't show their work to them. It's befuddling. And, And a lot of people have blamed it on incompetence, but a lot of people have also blamed it on corruption because, in fact, there was a tremendous corruption case in Suffolk County just a couple of years after this case broke. Chief of detectives named James Burke was investigated by the feds and eventually indicted and jailed for corrupt activities, some of which included roughing up a witness and carrying contraband around with him. And so it's easy to see, in retrospect, how someone like that would not want the FBI around. It wasn't until maybe 2014, when Burke was finally brought down, that the culture started to change. They decided to go public with certain evidence, like a a belt with initials on it. And they started to take seriously some of the cell phone data that the FBI had been offering to do analysis for them for years. It was really the beginning of the change. But then things get amped up even more. There's a whole new administration that comes in just a couple of years ago. And it's good news for this investigation because they bring in the FBI, they bring in the state troopers, they bring in the U.S. Marshals. They are able to take a look not just at cell phone data of burner phones that they've had for years, but they can research some of the old tips and find old information that suddenly reveals to them a suspect who seems especially promising. 
after the break, how the police finally nailed the man they say is responsible for these crimes. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. So just last month, after nearly 13 years, police did arrest a man who they say is the serial killer they've been looking for all this time, responsible for at least three in their understanding of the murders that were related to Gilgo Beach. How did they zero in on this guy? We've talked a lot today about the tribal nature of the police department and how they didn't collaborate. The fact is the police had done a lot of, they call them cell dumps from different cell towers that they felt, you know, were tied to pings from uh, the victim's phones. Like they just get every call that arrived at that tower at certain times? That's right. And then they do analysis of all those calls and they see what might intersect with the victim's phones and with other activity. And they came up with a geographical area uh, in central Long Island, including Massapequa Park, where Rex Herman lived. And then there's a tip, a, um, an eyewitness account of uh, a man who tried to hire Amber Costello the night before she disappeared, not the night she disappeared. This is a guy who got chased out of Amber's house by a friend And the friend got a good look at him and got a good look at his car, a Chevy Avalanche, which is a very particular looking car. And uh, the fact that this guy drove a Chevy Avalanche, that's really interesting because, you know, years later, once the police start to take this tip seriously, they, they run through. And sure enough, they find Rex Herman as one owner from central Long Island of this relatively rare car. And then things get interesting. They start to see that Wherever Rex Herman went, the burner phones that were connected to these women, they went the same place. Where he went, they went. And that gets them excited. They believe they might have the guy. And to seal the deal, they need DNA. It turns out there was some physical evidence that they thought was the killer. A couple of hair follicles found on tape that was used to bind the victims. They've had this for years, but the technology hasn't been good enough to analyze it. This is something that could not have been done 10 years ago, but they were able to use mitochondrial DNA testing and come up with a DNA profile. And then they used found DNA to try to match it up with Rex Herman. And it worked. Hmm. It was from his wife, right? Like apparently her, her hair was there and she had been out of town during the killings. This to me is one of the more interesting details. The hair follicles, there are three of them. Two of them are a match for his wife, and one of them is a match for him, according to the police. 
And so that, to me, it kind of knocks out another one of these true crime tropes about this case. You'll see, I mean, and there are going to be a million TV shows and documentaries about this case. They're going to talk about what a criminal mastermind this guy was, assuming he's convicted. But the fact of the matter is, he benefited from a police force that was tied up in knots and quite often not working the case as well as they could have. But also, he made lots of mistakes. If he eventually gets tied to this belt that the police feel like might have his DNA on it. Which has initials on it. Yeah, that, that, that's using a belt with initials and leaving it at a crime scene. That's a mistake. Pretty big one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And using a, a roll of tape to bind the victims, that's a roll of tape that you may have had lying around the house, but then, you know, unbeknownst to you, actually has hair follicles from yourself and your wife. That's another mistake. I feel like this guy is not Hannibal Lecter. I, I feel like this guy may be imposing looking and certainly like to overpower his victims and certainly is a vicious killer. Uh, but he also you know, made a lot of mistakes. How much do we know about Rex Herman, like who he is and, and what could have motivated him here? Do we know enough about that? Um, I don't think we do. I, I try not to get too profile because uh, I feel like it romanticizes these killers. But certainly, you know, he's a large guy. He selected very small women the idea of dominating seemed to interest him. Someone who's getting pleasure from it. Yeah, I, I suppose he also, very early on, there were criminologists who said this. They said if four bodies are found near one another, all positioned roughly the same way, all bound up roughly the same way, that's a intentional burial place. That's a place that the killer might want to drive by from time to time and understand and kind of relive the experience. I'm curious if you think... Rex Herman will turn out to be responsible for far more murders than those he's charged with now, even than those in Long Island. Like, I've read police as far away as Las Vegas and South Carolina are investigating whether they should link him to cold cases. Yeah, there's there's nothing yet, but there's certainly enough unsolved murders up and down Ocean Parkway and in Gilgo Beach and out in the Pine Barrens of Long Island to make you wonder if he's been working for a longer time. It's hard for me to think that a personality like this would ever quit. I did talk with one police source who said that it was the FBI behavioral unit's point of view that he wouldn't have quit. But, you know, that's, you know, secondhand. And I guess time will tell what gets actually linked to him. Herman was arrested last month. In the weeks since his arrest, how have the families of the victims responded Like, I'm wondering if you've seen a change in them. Like, obviously, there's the rush of the arrest itself. I just wonder if they're feeling angry that it took so long to get here or relieved that there's some kind of potential resolution. I'm seeing some of the family members being incredibly gracious about what's happened, voicing a lot of relief. Uh, The one that really moved me the most was Cherie Gilbert, who is Shannon Gilbert's sister. Uh, Shannon Gilbert isn't even a part of this arrest. Remember, her body was found somewhere else, and the police are still arguing that it's not a homicide. So Cherie would have every reason to be, you know, bitter or or impassive uh, with this news. But instead, she is out on social media and proud and, and happy for the other family members. There was a sisterhood for a very long time of, you know, mothers and sisters of the women who were part of this case, and Cherie is still feeling it, and she's happy this happened. I think it's interesting to look now at your approach to reporting this story, 
Like the title of your book is Lost Girls. And it inverts the serial killer narrative because you focus on the victims, the women. But now, of course, we're in this new stage of the story where we have an alleged killer. I wonder if that worries you in some ways. Like, now this one's been charged, it's going to be easy to focus on him and not the women themselves. Lost Girls was always meant to be kind of an unusual true crime book. It was from the very start a serial killer book without a serial killer. And it was meant to sort of interrogate a lot of the assumptions people make about cases like this. Of course, I always wanted an arrest. If someone had been caught while I was working on it, it would have been in the book as well. But my focus remained sort of on the families and definitely on the lives of the women, why they made the decisions they made, what we might misunderstand about these folks. And I do think that there's a place for the framing that I've, I've been working at for 10 years now, even in a, a larger narrative that's about the prosecution of Rex Herman or the search for other victims uh, to be tied to him. There is a way to keep the families front of mind, a way to keep the victims front of mind, and a way to keep this from becoming some sort of you know, cheesy thriller and something that really is about something deeper. Bob, I'm really grateful for your time and your reporting. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Great to talk with you. Robert Kolker is the author of Lost Girls. And that's our show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support us is to join our membership program. It's known as Slate Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to find out more. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. I'm handing things off to Lizzie O'Leary and the What Next TBD crew for now. I'll be back here on Monday. <laughs>